I have to get the recording started. <clears throat> Brother Pat said we're in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, and this morning signifies a, a change in, in tone and almost uh, a, chain, a change in audience. So we look at Hebrews chapter 6. It uh, seems over the past few weeks that we have come to realize that the audience was not a set of peoples who had at one time salvation or who at one time were true believers um, in Christ, but those who had professed. And this week, uh, in combination with what we have seen last week, we see the revelation of, of the truth that these were in fact those who did not believe unto salvation and of course could not have truly believed in Jesus as the Christ because their trust was not placed uh, completely in him and so this this week we see a, a change in tone that will remind you if you have maybe quickly forgotten the goodness of God I want to begin by reading uh, verse 4 that we would keep the same context that we have had over the past few weeks it says for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the holy spirit and have tasted the good word of god and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the son of god and put him to open shame for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives the blessing from god but if it yields thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned but beloved we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way let us go to the Lord in prayer. Most kind and gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, we come this morning, Lord, uh, acknowledging who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, that you have been the keeper of all men, God, that you have provided for every single one, Lord, that none have been left out, that uh, all have been uh, exposed to your goodness, God, and to the truth that you are the only God and that you are most high and worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be praised, God. And we come this morning, Lord, in acknowledgement that you have sent your only begotten Son. And because of him, uh, there is enlightenment, Lord. Because of him, there is redemption. Because of him, there are these elementary principles and doctrines on which we find ourselves in Christ. Lord, for these truths, we know that we can trust you, Lord, and this morning we look to your word, Lord, to provide evidence of the worthiness of Christ, Lord, to remind us of your goodness, God, to bring us into submission to your will, Lord, to bring us into a greater trust of thee, that we might be serving you as you have called us to do, God, that we might 
love as you have called us to love, that we may be imitators of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We just ask that you would bless this time spiritually, uh, most importantly, God, that we would see our Savior in it, that we would see Christ and we would not separate the passage from him, Lord, but that we would define and, and understand everything that we may from it in the light of his person. Lord, we just thank you that the shed blood of Calvary's cross is a reality, or that it is a finished work, as Brother Pat just read from Matthew, or that we can trust in it, Lord, and that it is sufficient. We ask that you would be worshipped today, Lord, that you would glorify yourself, that you would uh, bring a, a, an eternal blessing to your people as they would come to know even greater today the Savior that they uh, already know. Lord, we just thank you for it, Lord, and we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. we begin to look at this particular verse in the Hebrews, there comes uh, at this point in time a culmination in which we may summarize that for the Jewish people, there were many advantages to the knowledge that they had, that they possessed before Christ had uh, come in the flesh, that they had known from the beginning of time since God had begun to speak to his people. There were some advantages to Judaism. There were some understandings that we can see in the word that were present even in the old testament and, and from that we see the goodness of god that he was speaking to his people that he was not silent that he had not left his people void of knowledge or 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 his word of his will or of his persons and as we begin to understand that we also have to draw the line and say that although these things were available even to old testament uh, scholars and believers, if you will, it did not necessarily mean that they had salvation. And that is uh, something that we must as well deal with in the church, that we come to this understanding and be honest enough with ourselves this morning to say that just because we, like those in the passage, have received and been partakers and been to some degree enlightened, it does not necessarily provide for us salvation. We, ha we have to come to that conclusion. We have to be honest with ourselves and we have to look to God's word to see what salvation truly looks like, to see what that means, to make sure that our assurance doesn't rest upon our actions, but rather upon the actions of God in Christ. And that is really the peril of unbelief or the peril or the danger of not progressing. It's to know these things, but to do nothing with them. And in all actuality, the sinner is called not to do so much with them, but to trust that Christ has done with everything that he has accomplished redemption on Calvary's cross. And so when we look to verse 9 this morning, it begins to mold for us the goodness and the greatness of Christ to those who truly believe, to those who have uh, receive salvation more importantly but even to those who will receive it says but beloved we are convinced of better things concerning you better than this bad stuff that we see in verses four uh, through eight better than thorns and thistles better than partakers who do not continue to partake better than tasters who do not uh, or are not satisfied by the taste better than those who 
crucify to themselves this Son of God again. There are better things concerning you and things, it says, that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. See, the idea is that there are better things and there are things that, unlike what we see in verses 4 to 8, there are things that are better that accompany salvation. And this is to say that this enlightenment on all those things that we saw in the previous weeks of our study in Hebrews chapter 6, all of these things are great and wonderful, but if they lead not to salvation, there's no good in them. Not for the unbeliever. But for those who trust in Christ, of course, they are something to be treasured, something to be kept, something to be uh, encouraged and built upon and, and things that should grow. This morning, we look at the, the wonders of God and His salvation as we look at the first few words from chapter 6, verse 9. It says, uh, with just the first two, But beloved, doesn't seem much more than some introduction, right? It seems just like a greeting in a letter or maybe something that you would say uh, as you begin to write to someone who is dear to you. And in one sense, that is the truth. It is an introduction as to what he is about to, to speak about. But when we really look at it, but beloved, this morning when we begin reading with this particular verse, it is drawing a contrast as to what we have seen in verse 4. It was necessary to address those of you who would hear this and to those original recipients. It was necessary to begin this way, verse 9, so that we would understand that there is indeed that contrast. Consider it. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and then we have a long list of things, it says they crucify themselves, crucified to themselves again the Son of God and put him to shame. It's impossible to renew. And then in verse 9 he said, But, beloved, there's something that we can look forward to. There's a bit of hope uh, that is gained by making it from verses 4 through 8 to verse 9 because, you see, the, the idea is that for those who only are able to make it through those eight verses, there's nothing but condemnation. And that is the hope that we may live just a little longer before we get there. But then verse 9 comes and it gives us eternal hope. It says, but beloved, contrast is pictured in one of those who will never fully trust in Christ, verses 4 through 8. And now those few who might begin to trust in Christ and to do so to completeness. Not a partial trusting in Christ like the false professor, not a, uh, a partial trusting in Christ like the one who would pray the sinner's prayer and never be changed by the message of the gospel. Not, not like those, not like the world, but one who would be changed completely, this new creature that God guarantees at the giving of His Son and the application of the blood that He guarantees with the name in the Lamb's book of life that He guarantees as you are crucified and Christ is raised from the dead. This is the illustration being brought forth and unfortunately the illustration is set that some might discern the true spiritual regeneration but at the same time that the false professors see that same state that is described there. It, it is 
a bittersweet moment, right? Because we realize that some do not understand and they will die an eternal death and that some very few will understand and that is great and, and I would present to you that throughout this morning's study of verse 9 that there is time and time again a reminder as I look at it uh, of the bittersweetness of Christianity the bittersweetness of what it has cost man and more importantly what it cost God at what lengths and great despair that Christ has gone through to provide this it is about bittersweet moments for the Christian. On the other hand, if we were not to discern the person of Christ, it would be nothing but bitter. Nothing but bitter. So you have two choices, bitter or bittersweet. And for the Christian, I think we are completely and should be completely satisfied with the, the, the bittersweet truth of Christ going to Calvary's cross. And it will be depicted as we continue. And with these words, as it says... Beloved, the penman is really identifying duly with the parties involved. First, he's, he's speaking to these beloved uh, as an appeal from himself to the recipients. He's calling them beloved because he cares, because he's uh, uh, acquainted with, because he knows, because he's concerned. And secondly, his appeal with the same two words, beloved, there as he says it, but beloved, the appeal is from a perspective of Christ and his church. You see, he calls them beloved, and he does so in order that they may come to know that the intent by which the letter is speaking is not simply to speak badly of those in verses 4 through 8, because that wouldn't make much sense. It's not simply to come and scold the audience. We as fellow Christians would as well do to remember that each evidence of this criticism and every admonishment must likewise be presented from a faculty of love. And we have, we have to gather and stand at that basis and understand together that is how we must behave. That is what the point of admonishment is. That is what the point of criticism in any way should be. It must be presented from a faculty of love and, and concern, and that is where the penman is coming from. That is the first point in which I identified of these, uh, this dual appeal to the recipients of the letter. First, from himself. He must present an argument for Christ out of love. Very difficult thing for Christians. I believe that is why it is addressed so many times in the Bible, because oftentimes we make an appeal for Christ to be right rather than to be loving to be better rather than it to save those who would hear. This is not what the penman intends to do. Instead, he would like to present himself as one who loves these people and is out of concern rather than the alternate that would be to pridely, pridefully elevate himself spiritually. And that is what most oftentimes we do. That's what we do with the unregenerate when we have quote-unquote, debates and arguments. Listen, we've, there's no such thing as winning a debate in the Christian world. No winning a debate. There's only winning souls, and it doesn't come from a debate, but it comes from the proclamation of the truth, whether you argue your point 
uh, to the best of your ability or not. The, the fact is this, we know many people who are right that lose debates, correct? But the truth remains. The truth is what saves, and that must be uh, how we present this from a faculty of love, the truth of Christ, not to elevate ourselves above others, not to elevate, uh, elevate one Christian above the unbeliever or above the next Christian, but that there would be some level of spiritual understanding portrayed through it. Not that we would attain something over our brothers in Christ. John said this in uh, himself in chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. The, the very same thing is coming forth in verse 9. He's not saying, look, I'm telling you these things because I'm better than you. He says, I'm telling you these things because you have not yet seen the increase of Christ that is available to the believer. You have not experienced yet the increase of Christ that determines your salvation. This is the level to which we must attain less of us and more of Christ. What a stunning revelation that is given by God himself in this particular verse. In truth, we may never utter such words without God divinely and sovereignly leading us to such a place and to such a proper perspective of our gracious Savior as when he said those words in chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. John didn't get to that on his own. John didn't create this novel idea in his mind. Christ sovereignly, divinely, God through his Son brought him to such a perspective. And this morning when we look at Hebrews penman is saying listen god is moving you to such a perspective for those who truly trust in him god must bring you to a different place and it stands to reason that that is why a christian cannot be lukewarm it cannot be stagnant we're not looking for works uh so that we may attain salvation, but that works are there and they prove that salvation was already there. In fact, that's what proof is. Proof is evidence that the latter was, was true already, right? Proof is just proving what already exists. This is the perspective. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. This is where the penman is coming from as he addresses, but beloved. He says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's being careful and being sure that he is not offending, but he's making known his wish, his intent. Not that he would uh, be prideful and saying, look, I'm better than you. You need to get here. He's concerned with the soul. More importantly, he's concerned with the glory of God. Listen, it doesn't matter how many souls are saved as much as it matters how much God is glorified. That is the key. That is the intent. That is the purpose of man. And now we see uh, with such words as in John chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 4, the tenderness of this man's approach 
as writing this letter, divinely inspired, of course, of the Holy Spirit. This is his, uh, his tender approach to these Hebrew people, the one who had all of this special knowledge that no one else did of God up until the time that Christ comes. They had an understanding that was tucked away, that was veiled. It was a mystery. And like the attitude of the prophet Jonah, the penman of the Hebrews has some love for those whom he is going after, right? I never really considered Jonah much as a loving character. Didn't seem too much like a loving person. He was more fearful than loving, I would say. He seemed to be trodden down over the command of his Lord to go forth and to spread the gospel, and this is not the case in Hebrews. His love is immediately expressed through the term beloved. This is a divine love. This is God's love for his people. It comes uh, from the root word agape that we know as God love. And, and the truth is that there is no other love, okay? If there, if there is another love, it cannot be defined by God. And it is a, a partial at best love. It's an incomplete love. It's an imaginary love. It's a worldly, carnal love. And so we see back, as I said, he's making an appeal from himself to the recipients out of love, but most importantly, he's making his appeal from a perspective of Christ and the church. That perspective of Christ and the church is where he gets the word beloved. If it were not for that, he could not ever use the word. If it were not for that, he wouldn't know what love was. So we see that this term was not carelessly chosen, but when the term was selected here, but beloved, the Greek word was so meant to reveal that the beloved were not some temporally or carnally loved people uh, as we might see uh, in a movie or on a TV show, a, a lustful interpretation of love. But we're talking about those who were divinely loved of God. He was saying, listen, there are those who had received enlightenment. And, and to some degree, we see the general love of God for his creation, that he created it all, even those unregenerate, those iniquitous people. But what we see is the truth that, that God hates workers of iniquity. He must still do that. And so in that, the, the penman is separating here and he's saying, look, there are some of you that God eternally loves unto salvation. Not carnally, not temporally, not partially, but there is the fullness of the love of God. What is the fullness of the love of God? Well, it has to be Christ on the cross. The fullness of the love of God is where God is sending His only begotten Son to the cross that He may die for you, and that is where we get the term beloved. Beloved, the recipients of the full measure of God's love and grace. I wanted to save this for later, but I thought it was interesting uh, as I read through the commentaries again this week, and I'll probably say it wrong because I'm trying to go from memory. It said, um, I believe it was John Gill again. He said that the, the smallest measure of grace is greater than the full amount, the most gifts that a man can have. And that was the purpose of the text. 
to say, listen, there are partakers and there are gifts and there are wonderful things, but the least amount of God's grace is better than all of these. Christian must come to terms with this and he must decide and be persuaded in his own mind that that is indeed true. To a greater extent, these who received this original letter, they were those recipients of a longer love than what anyone described in verses 4 through 8 could understand. The love of God that we are told is unto us those who believe. Long-suffering love to usward, the church, and it is described there. A heavenly sacrificial love, a more intense love, a love that indicates to its reader it is a reservation for the few and not for the masses. It would be easy to quickly look past the significance of the term beloved, but this morning I think that we shall not. We shall not overlook it. There are those not depicted as forever fallen away, but here in verse 9, those who are chosen to receive a full portion of the gracious love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In one sense, when he says, but beloved, he is saying, but you who are loved beyond all others. Don't that make you feel good? Christianity, though, is not based on feelings, but the fact is is sometimes it feels wonderful. And every time that we're reminded of Christ, it does feel wonderful. In fact, the times that don't feel wonderful are the times that we have separated our thoughts from the thoughts of Christ. That is when we fail. There again, another bittersweet moment. These are not depicted that way. Not forever fallen away, not those who crucify to themselves again, not those who are beyond saving, is what we've seen in the previous passages, those who are living and abiding in the surpassing love of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, dealing with love, says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and amen. Do you see the surpassing love of Christ? Thus now we have no right to interpret it any other way. We cannot simply interpret this as a letter of of admonishment, but it is first and foremost a letter of love. You know why? Because the one who takes it simply as admonishment is not experiencing any love 
or so he doesn't think. And so he sees no grace, he sees no mercy, he sees no goodness in being corrected. He's missed out on the love. But for the one who sees these things and may be by them convicted, now may question himself and began to trust in Christ more. This is not a letter of admonishment, but it's the love of God that he may see the error of his ways and that he may cling to the cross. That is the definition that it embodies true admonishment, that it be done for the purpose of love, that it be done in the act of love, and that it be done for the one whom first loved, for Christ. You see, the, the penman didn't just write this because he was made to, kind of like what we were talking about with Jonah, but he did it for the purpose of love because he cared for the people. He did it because God was caring for these people. He did it through love because it was painful. And we all know at times when we, when we come against sin and we uh, speak out against sin, especially to someone who we care about, it's tough. It's hard, but he did it in the act of love, and he did it because he loved Christ who first loved him. There's no other reason for the penman to write these Hebrew people. In fact, if he was not changed by the love of Christ, then he would have no care for his fellow man. And he certainly would not have an ear for the things of God. We are convinced, but beloved we are convinced. Hmm. Such an interesting thing. Such a surety of hope. Words of guarantee. To be without any doubt is the meaning behind this word. We are convinced. To be without doubt concerning the effectiveness of of the words written here because some had heard and some had been enlightened and it did no good but he was convinced that for some there was something better we are sure that these words are not falling upon all deaf ears here it is written these are for the ears of the obedient those whose heart is given to God evident in their call to repentance and their response with such and in faith in Christ. To say such means that we must also be convinced of the ability of Christ to keep those whom his blood has as well been applied. Our confidence is in the fact that Christ's blood is sufficient and that Christ's blood shall be applied. And that God's word does not return void. There's our confidence. It's, it's magnified in every aspect of it. That we know that if, if we can start from the top and work our way down, or we can start from the bottom and work our way up, that we know if Christ has gone to the cross, then some will be saved. And some will be saved because they'll preach the word of God, and others will be saved, and the word will be effectual. Likewise, if we simply start at the bottom, that we believe that the word of God is true, and that it is powerful, then we know that the word of God is going to be powerful to those who hear it, and that those who hear it will believe it, and that it's so powerful there that they'll live it, and that they, if they live it, that the truth is that they are saved, and that the blood of Calvary's cross is so applied. 
doesn't matter how you look at it. If you look at it from a biblical perspective with a biblical Jesus, one who is not merely Savior, but who is Lord. Interesting subject. We had talked about it many times this week, Nathan and Christine and I, about the idea of lordship, that we don't make Christ Lord. Christ is Lord. And guess what? He's going to be Lord whether you acknowledge it or not. Just like President Trump's your president, whether you like him or not. A few years ago, Obama was your president. Whether you like him or not, you can say that he's not, but it doesn't change anything. The truth cannot be changed. We may try, but the truth simply cannot be changed. Jesus Christ is the only Savior, period. We must first deal with that. Then if we are able to deal with that, then the reality and the foregone conclusions from that will be the changes and there will be progression and there will be maturity in the life of the Christian. This is a guarantee. The penman here says it, but beloved, we are convinced. We know, listen, we, we don't know if you're a Christian, but we've seen real Christians and they will look like Christ. No if, ands, or buts. This is the reality of being convinced. The false converts, the, the wolves in sheep's clothing, they've been addressed in verses 4 through 8. But we say with all confidence that not all of you who are receiving this letter, this epistle, not all of you fall into that category. Some of you should be very scared, but not all of you fall into that category. That category of eternal condemnation. For some have truly believed. And, and here's the reality that the church must be looking forward to today and must be obedient to Christ for today is because not only have, have some truly believed, but some will believe. Again, beginning with that basis that we are convinced that the word does not go out and return void. Rooted in the truth that Christ didn't go to the cross for possible salvation. He didn't make salvation possible, but he made salvation a reality. We say with all confidence, some have moved forward from hearing of the Christ to being in the Christ as he is in you. There is the wonderful part of this bittersweet salvation and if this for some is the reality we as well have the assurance that continues in verse 9 better things concerning you we are convinced of better things concerning you now at this point when i when i got to these words in the sermon in the study i wanted to make a reference to romans chapter 8 because that's the first thing that jumps up in your mind. And then you start looking and you say, well, which verse do I reference? And you say, you know what, I'll cut the end of the sermon short because we need to read the entire chapter. We need to read the entire chapter. Therefore, in this assurance of Christ, as he says, the convincing of better things concerning you, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Here's the truth. 
of having partaken, of having been enlightened, and having been progressed, not by yourselves, but by Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Notice that they don't take any credit here. He hath made me free. For what the law could not do in that, it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do not mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. No carnal Christian. There is what we have to deal with. He's saying you cannot stay stagnant. You must progress. You can't progress. Christ must progress you. Amen. He says there are no carnally minded Christians. For that is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That would be a house divided for the one who professes. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they are in the flesh, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Subject to verse 9, ye in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye lived after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That is the, the guarantee. That is the convincing. There in verse 9, we are convinced of better things for you, that you shall not die in debt to the flesh, but indeed you may live by the Spirit of God. You are a son of God. Verse 15 in Romans chapter 8 continues, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. 
For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with peace wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart what is in the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spareth not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything in the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Whom is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, whom also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, it began and ends with the love of God, and that is what I would call letting the text do the preaching. When the penman arrived at the end of the 8th verse, and put, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. He just didn't want to read Romans chapter 8. He said it in such shorter words, the truth and the reality, that nothing in Romans chapter 8 had anything to do with man, but everything to do with the Savior. That is complete trust in Jesus Christ. And with that, Romans 8 has also revealed those better things. There was a long list of those things. Very long list. Things that belong to Christ but are shared to his weaker brethren. Things that we as those adopted are now partakers in and owners of. In every aspect, life in Christ is presented here as superior to life in the flesh given to sin. The temporal circumstances may attempt to deceive us and appear contrary. The, the, the temporal circumstances may make us think that, hey, you know what? Life is great. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to worship God today. Life is wonderful, but the reality is that the, the mark of Christ guarantees otherwise. Again, bittersweetness. And if 
But as simply put, it says, we can neither be separated from our Savior nor His eternal riches and glory. For that reason, we must trust in Him. He does not allow us to be separated. It says, convinced of better things concerning you. And then there's this little tidbit of information added. Just so that we don't wrongfully interpret what has been said thus far about these good things uh, and these better things. He said, these are things that accompany salvation. Notice what he says. Remember now, we love to talk about doing good and doing right. And whether we admit it or, or not, we have an issue with thinking that we can earn salvation, right? And here it says, listen, there are good things that are coming and there are good things that will be. And the good things don't bring forth salvation, but they come with it. They accompany. It's like buying a new truck and getting the trailer hitch. It comes with it. Now, you didn't buy the trailer hitch just so you could work your way up to a truck. That is what salvation in Christ is like, except greater and better and eternally speaking, more spiritual. That salvation has come as the gift of God in Christ. And because of that, better things are coming concerning you. Better things that accompany salvation. They can be somewhat, in some sense, attained through the flesh, but they won't last. You can have money, you can have houses, you can have all of these temporal riches, and, and you may have them, but the things of Christ are what will last. The things that come with salvation. He says, in spite of the fact that we are speaking in this way, temporal circumstances are at best deceiving. He says, these are things that come with salvation, all of which Roman 8, Romans 8 spent a great deal of time describing. 1 Peter 1 describes it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, Reserved in heaven for you. You didn't reserve it. And you certainly didn't go to heaven to get it. It is reserved in heaven for you on your behalf. Who are protected, says verse 5, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even now, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Him, Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you uh, do not now see him, but believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. All of that resting upon Christ and what he has done. 
ready to be revealed, greatly rejoicing. And then it even talks about trials and various tribulations. And there again, that bittersweet reminder, listen, grace is only great because sin is terrible. Mercy is only great because forgiveness is better than indebtedness. Salvation is great because eternity in hell is terrible. The blood of Christ is wonderful despite the fact that our Savior had to die. Do you begin to see the, the bittersweet moments of Christianity that must exist? And that is why in the trials that we understand they are necessary to see the goodness of God because if you did not see the terribleness of the flesh, you could never see the goodness of God. That's the problem. Those not progressing, those being enlightened, they hear about, they see about the goodness of God, but they seek to deny the terrible aspects of sin condemnation in it the point was that all of these things together will accompany salvation not just one or two of these things that these people seem to in verses four through eight they seem to to be putting on display there there might have been what looked like because they're assembling with believers it looked like they were saved they had what looked like evidence we see it all the time we may not even know they had these little fruits, if you will. But the Bible's clear. God is clear. One or two is not enough, but you must have the many. Likewise, Galatians calls them fruits, plural. Fruits of the Spirit, and they are not fruits in which we can choose which ones we bear, but if we are of the tree, the vine, the root that is Christ, the only one that will survive any type of desolation, then we must exhibit all of these fruits. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you've got three, you don't have enough. got a partial Jesus you don't have enough it says against these things such things there is no law all of these are necessary and they're evidences of truly being Christian these are key components not one not two but you must have the whole this is what uh, Johnny Cash was talking about one piece at a time. He didn't have it until he had it all, right? This is what the Bible is telling Christians. You must progress. You cannot have one bit or one piece, but you must have the entire Christ. And to have the entire Christ, He will not come upon those who do not trust. He will indwell those whom He causes to trust in Him completely. And if he's not bringing you to that state, it may not be the Jesus of the Bible. These are necessary. In some ways, though darkly opposite, 
They're like leaven. You leave out one ingredient and you have a bread more fit for a taco than a sandwich, right? Just one small thing left out and you have two totally different end products. It's like if you were to mix water and yeast and flour, you'd have a loaf of bread. But you take those same ingredients, add eggs and vanilla and sugar, a little butter, and you have something much sweeter, right? You got a cake. Easy with the amens. But that's the reality of the passage as it is speaking about being partakers in Christ. To have some of the ingredients versus having them all, there are two totally opposite outcomes. Not everybody's running up for a piece of bread, but everybody's wanting cake. There are people who are dying with diabetes that want a piece of cake. That is the sweetness of Christ that you want every bit of them. And not just part. Those who had and partook in the Holy Spirit and had parts of Christ are the ones that say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he'll say, depart from me, workers of iniquity. The latter is much sweeter. The same is with Jesus. If you exhibit some of what seems to be the fruit or some growth, if you take in some of that rain that we read about the past couple weeks and you sprout, some may look and say, hmm, presumptuously, this person might be good. But let that incomplete bad seed mature to a thistle or a thorn. Same ingredient, wrong seed. Seed of self-righteousness. Then we have something of your father, the devil, rather than of Christ. Same ingredients, but just not all. We need not to replicate the goodness in a few areas to be partakers in a full goodness that we cannot obtain ourselves, but we need to replicate the mind and the will of Christ. Through Him, He will obtain the righteousness that we need. Such is the recipe for righteousness. We may not fall short on the ingredient list. It's, it's either all or nothing. You cannot have some. We cannot attain salvation unless we have all of the Christ. And unless... Christ has all of us. Having it all rest on the sufficiency of that biblical Jesus. God's goodness amidst iniquity and sin, that is what we must see. Why must there be evil? We, we ask the question. Verse 9 presents a case that reminds me sort of of a, of a blackberry bush. That when you're going and picking, you're kind of worried that you may get stabbed and things may happen. But when you go home to eat the cobbler, you don't remember the thorns. You remember the goodness of what came forth. That is the Christian life. Amongst trials and tribulation, to remember and to see the goodness of God. To know that what he is bringing forth uh, is not a thorn in your flesh, but is that which is necessary to draw you to the sweetness of the Savior. Some who have fallen away that are described in the previous 
verses may have exhibited one or two of these, but the many may only be mastered by one who has fulfilled all things, the many who will enter into heaven that are actually the few of the large uh, who have been created. They must be mastered by Christ. They must be trusting in Christ and in His fulfillment. This is a biblical Jesus. This is Jesus who is the Son of God, the Son of Man. Therefore, it stands that if He is the one to master everything on our behalf because we cannot, we don't have all the ingredients. If the righteousness must come from him and every fruit from him, then we can rest assured, we can say this is our Christ and we know that because he was crucified, we can live. We can live because he did live. We can live because he must live in us. Our hope indeed can be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. We sing it, and we forget what it means. The picture of the vine is one where the root, that is Christ, provides the grace and the mercy and the love that we see in the passage and the progression and that spiritual meat that pushes the branches toward heaven this is the vine that is christ notice that he could have been called the true tree he could have been called the true bush he could have been called anything but he chose true vine the vine begins with a strong solid root and moves its fruit upward and outward what a wonderful picture of the Savior. And when we consider it in light of verse 9, these, beloved, we are convinced that there are greater things for you, things that accompany salvation. There are greater things, things that you have missed. You have a partial view of Christ. What does that mean for us this morning? What does it mean for those who read the text today and who already know and are sure that they have been saved by Christ? It's an encouragement to be reminded to keep reading, to keep praying, to keep trusting because there's more of Christ than you can ever hold. There are some ingredients that you have not checked off your list and your neighbor cannot bring them to you. Nor can your pastor nor can your parents, nor can your offerings, nor can your good works. There is some sugar that your neighbor cannot let you borrow. There are some ingredients that are necessary. And there is some fruit that is there, ready to be born, yet we must only trust in Christ. What was the issue? Trusting in Christ. Chapter 6. And in one sense, all of the chapters from chapter 2 forward to this point, what was the issue trusting in Christ? What is the answer? Trusting in Christ. We're called today to examine ourselves by the text and see if we are sinning against God. And you don't have to raise your hands because that would be too many hands. We all have sinned against God. Not past, but present and future as well. What must we do? 
trust in Christ. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come to you, Lord, we thank you for a time when the Spirit may serve as intercessor. Lord, in an eternal time where your Son, Jesus Christ, serves as mediator, Lord, we come in acknowledgement that no sacrifice may be given at the hands of men that will save, that will suffice, Lord, that will please or be appeasing to you. The only sacrifice that we have may be the one that is named Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Son of God. Jesus the Son of David. Jesus who called himself Son of Man. Lord, this day we offer to you our thanks, Lord, and our worship. We assemble in great joy knowing that Christ has fulfilled all that has been ordered. Lord, that he is sufficient, O God. We thank you for him, God, and ask that you would continue to bless spiritually with enlightenment, with knowledge, with discernment, and with love towards our Savior, that we may in all ways be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we just ask that you would abundantly uh, provide spiritual growth this day as we have partaken of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.